Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue, and we're coming to you from the campus of Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Recent mass shootings in El Paso, Texas, Dayton, Ohio, and earlier in Gilroy, California, have not only renewed the age-old arguments about gun control, they have raised questions about whether enhancing law enforcement authorities' ability to combat domestic terrorism would unconstitutionally suppress the First Amendment freedoms of white supremacists and other groups. Dr. John Vile, Dean of the University Honors College, is a constitutional law scholar and author of numerous books and articles. We'll question just how far is too far after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. In advance of one of the biggest eating seasons of the year, some MTSU students will approach the table with a different perspective because of a special program. Blue Raiders Drink Up, Healthy Choices for Healthy Students, is sponsored by MTSU's Center for Health and Human Services. It's funded with a three-year grant provided by the Tennessee Department of Health as part of the Project Diabetes Initiative. Students are learning the importance of healthy beverage choices and reducing sugary beverage consumption. And as the campus community prepares for the holiday season, students who are experiencing the loss of a loved one can take advantage of a special service. MTSU Counseling Services, in partnership with Alive Grief Support of Nashville, will continue its grief counseling groups in the spring 2020 semester at the Counseling Services Office in the Keithley University Center. The dates are January 28th, February 25th, March 24th, and April 28th. Diane Castellano, a grief counselor at Alive Hospice and a licensed clinical social worker, facilitates each session, which is designed to support students who are grieving the loss of a loved one or the impending loss of a terminally ill friend or family member. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Welcome back, John. Good to be here. Uh, there was a recent New York Times article that drew a distinction between domestic and international terrorism, saying that there is no federal domestic terrorism law. So charges against domestic terrorists with no foreign connections have to be prosecuted in state courts under murder or other statutes. Should there be a comprehensive federal domestic terrorism statute? Probably as much depends on the will of the administration in power to enforce existing laws as would depend on the adoption of new laws. I mean, there are, the, the statement from the New York Times is not quite right. Um, you know, the FBI certainly would have the chance to get a warrant, for example, uh, if, they, if they were looking on the net and they saw what's known as a true threat, which is you know, not just, you know, someday I'm going to blow the place up, but, you know, I'm going out to buy a gun and they're going to see me in Washington, D.C., a threat like that. Certainly they would have, I think, adequate tools if they wanted to use them probably already. Could FISA be used against a white supremacist group? You know, I'm honestly not sure. I do know that when it comes to wiretapping, the rules are eased if you're if you're receiving a call from a foreign country that is known as a, you know, if you're getting regular calls from Syria or uh, North Korea or whatever, 
probably that would fit under FISA in a way that, you know, getting a call from West Virginia or South Carolina probably would not, absent some other considerations. The president of the FBI Agents Association, Brian O'Hare, is calling for a comprehensive domestic terrorism law. Um, is, is there room for ethnic groups to say, well, it's discriminatory to call Islamic groups terrorist, but not call white supremacist groups terrorist? Do they have a case? Well, when you think of Islamic groups, one typically thinks of a current foreign government. When you think of white supremacy, you might think of Nazism, but that's, you know, there are no, I mean, there's certainly some governments that act in a Nazi-like fashion, but there are no, to my knowledge, there are no countries right now that are sort of motivated specifically by that ideology. So that but probably... There are neo-Nazi groups in the United States. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. A- absolutely. But I'm what I'm saying is it's a lot easier, you know, if you want to put a a tap and and you're and you're you expect largely to get data from somebody who's probably not a citizen calling from abroad that's going to have a lower threshold than it would be to you know get a warrant from as i said from west virginia or or south carolina or whatever yeah. states they might originate in but if you investigate a mosque on the uh, because you have intelligence that indicates it might be home to a terrorist cell could you also and should you also be investigating churches and other meeting places that your intelligence tells you might be white supremacist cells Within the United right. States. No, no, I'm, I, I get the question. I'm, I'm hesitating because the answer, you know, I'm, I'm really uncomfortable with investigating either mosque or churches. I understand uh, the complications it, and I mean, the nuances. I mean, because you know, here, not yeah. only do you have, do you have First Amendment freedom or First Amendment free speech issues, but you also have freedom of religion. Yeah. And you know, courts have, you know, there would be a difference, I think, between court, courts have traditionally drawn a. a fairly broad distinction between religious belief and religious practice. If you have reason to believe that a church, Christian or, you know, professing to be Christian or otherwise, is engaged in human sacrifices, I don't think you probably need an extra law to go ahead and get a search warrant. You know, I think there would be existing child endangerment laws or kidnapping laws or whatever that would probably cover that. The police would use the exigent circumstances justification in order to barge into the church and try to save a person. But, But again, you know, I think whether it's Christian, Muslim or, you know, atheist, one needs to be relatively careful about... You know, not jumping to conclusions on the basis of, you know, somebody, you know, particularly if you think of all the rumors that have surrounded Islam, you know, so-called, well, you know, Islam, most of which, you know, domestically, you know, I don't think we've had very many cases of domestic Islamic terrorism. Now we've, you know, I mean, 9-11, but (laughs) um, I think it's probably a little bit different. And that's why we're having this conversation. Exactly. Right. And and no use talking about something that's easy. (laughs) (laughs) We'll take a break here. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. The Concrete Industry Management Program at MTSU fills the need for trained personnel who know concrete technology and techniques. Our alumni go into the marketplace grounded in basic math and science and able to promote products or services related to the industry. 
Our participation in the academic common market ensures talented students in other states a chance to enroll on an in-state tuition basis. This is Dr. Heather Brown, director of the program. To find out more information on this or other university programs, visit mtsunews.com. MTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking about domestic terrorism and uh, whether the investigation of it by the federal government might rub up against the uh, freedoms guaranteed to us by the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution with Dr. John Vile, Dean of the University Honors College and a constitutional law scholar. David Cole, the legal director of the ACLU, says the Supreme Court probably would rule that the First Amendment prohibits the government from making it a crime to provide support to a domestic organization such as money. Do you think the court would be so inclined? Is there any case that would serve as precedent on the matter? I've sort of given up predicting what the Supreme Court is going to do because I often get it wrong. Yeah. I don't think there would be any problem if, you know, if there is a special fund, whether it's called Christian or Islamic or something else, if there's a specific fund where we're raising money to blow up the Capitol or, you know, attack a government building or commit carnage, I don't think there's any problem there. I think the problem is that, you know, often you have – You know, sometimes people get falsely identified as fellow travelers. You get a brochure or, you you know, think about even the the Black Panthers in the 1960s, which in retrospect were probably more violent than some people were recognizing at the time. But it's quite possible that somebody could have given them money because they heard they were supplying breakfast uh, for, you know, school children or, or, you know, children during the summer. So the the intention of them would not necessarily – probably would not have been – to further violence, and yet the or you know, so you you have to give a little bit of leeway for what people know and what they don't. Now there are the the, the ACOU director there is correct in saying that we have painted with a fairly broad brush when it comes to sending to investigating people who are sending money to foreign organizations, even if they might be doing some good. You know, I, I mean. I, Probably even al-Qaeda from time to time will feed a widow or, you know, take care of a child. But if you – when it comes to – you don't have quite the same right, I would think, to give money to a foreign entity that would be considered a direct enemy of the United States as you might a domestic group. Whatever you do, you're setting – you know, if you set a precedent to investigate American mosques, you could be setting a precedent to investigate American churches. Or you know other groups, so it, it, it it's it, it's not always easy. What would be the difference between investigating domestic groups today, uh, like white supremacist groups, and the FBI infiltrating the Ku Klux Klan with their own agents during the 1960s? You know, I'm not an expert on that particular aspect. I would think that you could do both. I mean, I, I would think that if you had evidence that you had a domestic group 
that was engaged in terrorism, and certainly some of them are. You know, there there are groups other than the Klan that have sort of the same kind of agenda as the Klan. I, I think you would still be able to do that. But from a First Amendment standpoint, what we're talking about is the not always so bright line between speech and behavior. And uh, the very clandestine nature of the group makes it difficult to ascertain whether they intend on putting their hate speech into some kind of violent action. Sure. And therein lies the the difficulty. Yeah, I mean, I do think, I think law enforcement probably has a bigger advantage today than they had 30 years ago in terms of how much, well, works both ways. There's so much, there's so much more on the electronic media that one might be able to access and do some of it without actually having to join the group. Yeah. On the other hand, because there is so much, it's often difficult to filter out, as you say, you know, the true threat, which is not covered by freedom of speech, and, you know, abstract arguments that, you know, if things get worse, there's going to be a revolution or, or however one might phrase it. To differentiate between odious speech, however odious it may right. be, protected by the First Amendment, right. and the intent to uh, go into a, an African-American church and start mowing down right. people with an AK-47. Uh, again, you know, there's a legal doctrine called a true threat, which is – and you see this all the time. And there was a man who was just sentenced, if I recall, to 15 years or better for having threatened Bill Clinton when he was president. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not freedom of speech. There's a, you know, there's a case, Brandenburg versus Ohio, from about – I believe it's 1968, maybe 69 uh, – in, in any – yeah, 69. Uh, there's a case there where the court for public speech, the, the threat was – or the, the test was an imminent threat of lawless action, which was a little bit more refined than the previous clear and present danger test. And particularly with the word – you know, to, to say someday we're going to have to do something is very different from saying, you know, to arms, let's march on – you know, Dayton or El Paso or wherever one might be going. But when it came to investigating the mafia under the RICO Act, uh, it seemed to have already been assumed from past practices that they were investigating a crime organization. Well, they and, were. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and they, they didn't have too much trouble getting court permission for wiretaps Right. to pick up the conversations of John Gotti and company, right. even though they were talking in code because they knew bloody well that they were being wiretapped. Sure. And again, I mean, the other difference, though, is, is you don't – it's hard – maybe there were some that I don't remember, but I don't ever remember organized crime sort of also being actively involved in – other political kind of things. So it's a little bit easier, you know, if, if the whole purpose of an organization is just sort of a criminal syndicate, uh, that's a little different from an organization that might have criminal tendencies that also is, you know, I mean, I hate to say it, but, but it's true. I mean, racism is a legitimate topic mm-hmm. for, for discussion. Now, some of them uh, have yeah. hid behind anti Italian anti-defamation leagues taking advantage of the uh, the the fact that 
good, decent Italian-American people resent being painted with the same broad sure, brush and, and as the a, mafiosos. You know, it, right. And so the mafiosos pick up on this and say, hey, we're <laughs> speaking out as loudly as we can against this prejudice against Italian-Americans. Yes, well, <laughs> I think we're more prejudiced against criminal Americans of whatever their nationality may be. One can only hope. Yes. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. Specialized training in forensic science prepares tomorrow's professionals through the Forensic Institute for Research and Education, or FIRE. The Forensic Anthropology Search and Recovery Team assists law enforcement with skeletal remains at crime scenes. Legendary forensic scientists provide lectures free to the public, and high school students work realistic crime scenes each summer at our CSI MTSU camp. I'm Dr. Hugh Berryman, Director of FIRE. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Expanding Your Horizons is an annual hands-on science and math conference for middle and high school girls. EYH enables girls to investigate careers in science and math and to talk with female leaders in those fields that are so essential to our nation's future. EYH also provides the girls with fun hands-on activities and allows them to meet girls with similar interests. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, EYH Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking about domestic terrorism and the First Amendment, and do they necessarily have to clash with Dr. John Vile, Dean of the University Honors College and a constitutional law scholar. There is a fellow by the name of Michael German. He's a former FBI special agent who worked on the infiltration of extremist groups when he was with the Bureau. He's now a national security fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University School of Law. He says, quote, they're beating somebody's brain in and they've beat somebody's brains in in the past and they're promoting themselves as somebody who beats somebody up. Why are we treating that as a First Amendment issue? End quote. In other words, if you if your organization has a track record, is that enough justification for a federal law enforcement agency to uh wiretap, infiltrate, or use well, whatever investigative it, it, method. It, it's certainly enough to go to a, you know, if you're talking about wiretapping, it's certainly enough to go and try to establish probable cause. You know, the judge is there to make sure that it is not, you know, just politically motivated or racially motivated. Um, you, you know, the the one other, I mean, this isn't, it's, it's not a hard and fast distinction, but if you're talking about domestic terrorism, you would think that many states would be able to intervene on their own in a way that they may not if it's primarily being directed from abroad. So you do sort of have, I mean, you, you know, in New York particularly, I mean, this has traditionally been true. You know, they've been very good about going mm-hmm. going after the mobs and there's certain district, you know, certain federal prosecutors in New York, e- even in, you know, some of the things that have surrounded, uh, surrounded the Trump administration that, you know, even when the feds are through, there's still the possibility of, you know, well, maybe New York State is going to ask for this tax return or do further investigation into, you know, this activity or another. It would depend upon the degree of political will within each state, which might vary from state it to might. state. That, that's, that's right. Germans also says that because the FBI is passing along the responsibility for reporting hate crimes to state and local authorities, 
hate crimes are vastly underreported because the cops get pressure from the city fathers about the bad publicity it would spawn and, oh, such and such a company won't want to locate its factory here and all that. I think that's probably true. It's curiously, and it seems like a long stretch, but there, there was a period in somewhere about 1812 to 1820 where there was a major earthquake. I believe it was in Charleston, South Carolina, and they didn't want federal aid because they they didn't want it to appear as though, you know, people who might be going down there for a visit would be afraid of earthquakes. So, no, it's really not a big deal. We'll just take care of it ourselves. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I have no reason to believe it's true here, but what, you, you know, campuses now have to have to report crimes. Who wants to report, you know, that there have been right. major crimes on your campus? But so. if it's taken care of at the federal level and the statistics are gathered at the federal level, couldn't the local and state politicians just say, well, we had to obey what the feds told us to and they could well, just possibly. slough it off on the feds? Again, so much of this depends on will at either the state or the national level. And, you know, for better or worse, you might have white nationalist groups who lean in one political direction more than another, which, you know, is not necessarily concomitant of their ideology, but the group which thinks they're getting at least some kind of support from them might be a little bit more hesitant to prosecute than, you know, someone who, who thinks they've lost them anyway. Of course, another problem with this is the lone wolf who is inspired by right. the white supremacist okay. ideology, but not necessarily tied to any particular organized group, exactly. just inspired by what he reads. Okay, now I want to correct you, okay? Okay. And everybody does it. Yeah. But I have an editorial from a year or two, several years back, that I probably need to, to revisit. Okay. But I like to distinguish between inspire and incite. Okay. When I think of inspiring, I think of, you know, you're inspired to do great things, you know, grad, mm-hmm. you know, go out and save the world. Something if uplifting. You're in, yeah, and I think of incitement as, you know, taking advantage of some poor schnook uh, and getting them to go out and be the lone wolf while you're, you know, sitting in your comfortable office spewing out an ideology. And again, it's very common for... for Point for well this, taken. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> then... What do you do about the singular lone individual who uh, reads a bunch of junk on the Internet and then takes it upon himself or herself to mow people down with an assault weapon? Uh, If you can't tie them to any particular organization, it's like like asymmetrical warfare. No, it is. And, and, And actually, you know, to my knowledge, most cases that we have seen, and certainly El Paso and Dayton, both seem to be lone wolves. Uh, there's a very interesting article, and I wish I could remember his name, but there was a, a, a prominent, possibly a pastor, but prominent anti-abortion advocate who for many years, you know, he would, you know, that this, this is, you know, Dr. So-and-so lives here, and one of them was assassinated. And he has since come back and said, you know, that was never my intention. I, you know, I didn't know somebody would be unbalanced enough to say, well, he gave me the name I need to go shoot him. But, you know, he, he's sort of cautioning people on both sides that sometimes, you, you know, and I think academicians particularly, you know, 
I love nothing better than to get in the middle of a great discussion in class and throw out something controversial, even if the kids sort of hate me for it, you know. It gets them excited, but sometimes we need to realize that there can be unbalanced people that hear this kind of thing, and you know they hear they hearing correctly a call to arms. You know, I think you just get an unbalanced person, and you notice, you know, frequently they are young white males. Um, you know, often maybe people without a job or uh, or the like. The various definitions of what's foreign and what's domestic seem to be problematic. There are people who say. Radical Muslims are promoting a foreign-based ideology. Well, if that's the case, what are the domestic neo-Nazis in the United States promoting? Nazism didn't originate here. Does it matter whether the ideology itself comes from here or abroad? Well, I mean, I guess when we, th- you know, when we think of treason, I'm, I'm sort of making an analogy here. We usually think of somebody warring against the United States, and we, you, when you do that, you tend to think in terms of countries or regimes. Um, you know, racism, of course, preceded Nazism, and we had, we had American racism long before, you know, Nazism was ever, was ever born. So, right, I mean, it's, it's not just the fact that it is, that it is foreign originated, although, again, Foreigners do not have necessarily the same rights as citizens do when it comes to even the First Amendment. So, you you know, and particularly when it comes to, you know, what they might say over the phone. But the Supreme Court has held that they do have the same right of due process, do they They, not? They do, yes. Once they are arrested and put on trial. Again, I'm thinking more in terms of the of what I said about wiretaps earlier, right. where, you know, if if the assumption is that the call is coming from abroad, from a foreign citizen, and particularly if it's a one-way tap, if you're primarily listening to that person, then you don't have this, you, you know, you would not have the same concern that you might if you're talking, you know, somebody t- from Tennessee talking to someone in North Carolina. It's complex and the words matter. They do. And, you know, one of the things about our founding fathers that I like so much is they were very suspicious of power. And, you know, sometimes our suspicions of power can work against us because, again, you know, if what's good for the goose is good for the gander, then a precedent that you set for what you consider a foreign ideology may later become a precedent for something that is not. Dr. John Vile, thank you for being our guest today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. We'll be right back. The Middle Tennessee Writing Project is a program that fosters the effective teaching of writing to students in kindergarten through high school. The project hosts annual summer institutes where teacher participants teach and learn from each other effective techniques of teaching writing. In addition, the project sponsors summer writers camps for youngsters. MTSU is one of 185 sites of the National Writing Project and one of only two in Tennessee. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Tennessee Employment Relations Research Association, or TERA, gives labor relations specialists and academics a chance to share their views and their data. TERA wants academics and other interested in human resources and industrial relations to work together at meetings and conferences to strengthen the workplace. Many MTSU faculty belong to TERA, which has members in 20 states and 7 nations. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Gina Fan has the middle moment. 
Nancy Jones kept MTSU recording industry students spellbound during a recent campus visit with stories of her adventures by turns hilarious and poignant with husband George Jones. Nancy Jones, who established an MTSU scholarship honoring the country icon shortly after his 2013 death, told of their first meeting, their family wedding, traveling together, and even how she finally convinced the bashful legend to open a museum for the career memorabilia he preferred to give away. One of the museum's first visitors in 2015 was the couple's beloved terrier, Bandit, who was missing her dad. I think my favorite part of the museum would probably be, the well, one would be Bandit, the dog that we had, she was like, this long when I got her. She traveled on the bus with us and she slept on the nightstand. I put a pillow on it and she would sleep there. I guess she was so close to George too. She lays down flat under those domes and listened to his music and then she would like, she was blind, she couldn't hear. She would act like she's a year old. She would all of a sudden, like white lightning or something came on, shoom, all the way around that place she was going. Just she, Then she'd stop and go. <sighs> That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.